Hi, it's my, it's my line. All right, tonight, uh, I'm, uh, I'm excited because what we get to dive into tonight is the reason that I have my job. It's the reason that we sit here. It's the greatest story ever told that is hardly ever told. We're going to jump into the question coming out of last night, which was heavy, right? That, that we all have a court case, that we are all are going to see God face to face one day. And when we see him face to face, he is going to make one of two declarations. He will either say, come in my child and find rest, welcome. Or he's going to say, away from me, evil do doer, I do not know you. We are either a child of God or an enemy of God. We are an object of his wrath or an object of his love. We are destined for condemnation apart from God in a place where God is not, which means none of his common grace, no pleasure, no mercy, no, uh, no encouragement, None of those things, no peace, or we will spend forever in God's presence. And 1 Corinthians 13 says, right now we experience God as we would experience someone in a mirror, not face to face, but one day we will. We will see the face of truth himself. We will see the face of love himself. We will see peace. We will see him, our great Paschal Lamb, who sat in our place on Calvary and took away our sin. We are going to catch up in the story. We've got a lot of Bible to cover, starting at chapter 9, going all the way to chapter 18. And then what we're going to do is from there, we're going to do uh, a little bit of a role play again. And we're going to pretend like you and I are just sitting down and we're having a cup of coffee at, uh, over at Pondy Deck or something. And I'm just going to walk you through what the gospel is. If you sat here this week and you've become acutely aware that you're sinful, that you're in need of a savior, that you're an enemy of God, that you are far from him, but you want that all to change, then I'm going to walk you through in the text to show you exactly what it means to be saved, and I'm going to give you an opportunity tonight to respond to that. So we start by walking through the gospel of John, beginning at chapter 9. We're going to do this with a little bit of pace as we go through, because we have uh, we want to get to the best stuff, which is the good news of salvation. So uh, John chapter 8, we got the woman caught in adultery. It jumps to John chapter 9. Jesus starts this theme of blindness. He heals a blind man. And then he talks about how not only is this man who was born blind have physical blindness, but all who sit in the audience of Jesus who don't understand who he is are experiencing spiritual blindness. He's saying it's not enough to know the name of Jesus. It's not enough to be a fan of Jesus or to be excited when Jesus walks by. But it, it, you, you, that's spiritual blindness. You need to have the veil taken from your eyes. He's more than that. He's bigger than that. Jesus did not come to earth so you could be a fan of him. He came to earth to adopt you through, through sonship and through daughtership, to make you his own. That is what the great substitution is. Romans chapter 10, or sorry, John chapter 10, Jesus uses a different theme. He talks about himself as the good shepherd. And a good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the gate, Jesus says. John 10 verse 10. Satan has come to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. This is a God who's now promising to be the giver, procurator, the founder and finisher of life. I am life, Jesus says, quoting back to John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, and in him was life, which is important because John chapter 11, we find a man who is dead named Lazarus. And we see, if you call yourself the life, can you actually bring life to dead things? John chapter 11, verse 35, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Jesus sees the end result of sin in his friend dying. And he's not a, Jesus is not a far and distant God. He is not a savior of the universe who comes down into our mess and into our brokenness and says, I wonder what suffering feels like. No, 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 no. Jesus has now watched one of his best friends die. He sees Mary and Martha, two women that he loves, weeping over their brother. Jesus weeps bitterly. Even though he knows the conclusion of the story, he still knows that in the meantime, we are going to suffer and we're going to experience pain and loss and suffering and betrayal and cancer and hate and bigotry. And Jesus just doesn't simply come into a world and say, knock it off, don't you know the end result? He sits with us in the middle of our pain and weeps alongside of us. You see, the Greeks at the time had a word for their gods. Zeus, Poseidon, Hermes, all these other 
uh, creations of the Roman and, and Greek mindset. And the way that the people of that day and age would reference their gods when it come to mankind, they called them apatheia. What does, what does the word apatheia sound like? Apathetic, good. You see, in this culture before Jesus got here, the polytheism, they would look at the gods and say, the gods don't care about us as people. They are apatheia towards us. And here comes Jesus weeping alongside his creation. He's hurt. He's broken for them. He wants them to know a better life. He is anything but apatheia, not just apathetic to his people, but he's not apathetic towards you. He cares about you. He thinks about you. You come to the mind of the God of the universe. He is anything but apathetic. That's John chapter 11. John chapter 12 moves into this new season where Jesus is going to enter into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry. There's an east gate to the city of Jerusalem. And if you know the history of Jerusalem, the only people who ride in through the east gate are the kings. There's a sheep gate, there's a dung gate, there's a lion gate, there's a lot of gates to the city. But only if you're declaring yourself king and you're coming from winning a war in the east would you ever enter through east gate. Jesus puts himself up on a donkey and guess where he rides into town? You gotta love it. On a donkey, this poor tecton quarry worker, five foot five, unattractive man, starts a riot because he rides in through the king's gate and he basically says, you may crown me king, you may crucify me as a blasphemer, but you don't have a third option. And the people of the crowd start to, they tune in. This guy's making big claims, they say. And he bifurcates everyone, sets, separates them. Some of them are going, how dare you shut this man up? And a chant starts amongst the people who have started to buy in that perhaps Hamashiach HaTabo, this is the one we've been waiting for. And they start to chant in their own language, Hosanna. Hosanna, and it starts to rise. And in their own language, they are screaming out Hosanna, which translated means, save us now, save us now. What is Rome here? Rome here is an uprising of Jews who are pointing at this man riding in through Eastgate on a donkey, and they're saying, save us now. Do you think that the Jews were talking about being saved from their sin? No, they were pointing at Rome because everyone thought, when Messiah comes, he's going to get us out of our oppression. He's going to get us out of slavery to Rome. He's going to free us and make us our own people again. But Jesus had a freedom in mind, Isaiah 61, which was much more important than just who was oppressing them. He came to free them from death, to free them from hell, to free them from spiritual oppression. But the people said, forget about that. You take down Rome. And now... Rome and the Jewish council have a decision to make. He's starting riots, they say. And now the, the, the Jewish elite are going to Rome and going, do you hear them? Do you hear what they're saying? This guy rode in through your east gate and now they're chanting to save now. And friends, just so you understand Rome, that chant is for them to overthrow you. What are you going to do about this Jesus guy? And the Jews start to build a case against him. And if they can just convince Pilate and Herod and the other religious leaders and the the other Roman leaders, that this guy poses a threat to Caesar and to the kingdom and to the empire, they can get him thrown out. They can get him taken care of. So they begin to plot against him. How are they going to take him down? Jesus does not make it difficult for them. He walks in and he looks at the Jewish temple and he says, I could tear this thing down and rebuild it in three days. But he's speaking of his very own body. But they... When they're going to write it down, they're going to say, he threatened to tear down our temple. They're going to continue to accuse him of doing everything. And, and he's finally going to be tried for the crime of blasphemy, which is claiming to be God. Do not make the silly mistake that a lot of people have made in our world where they try to read the text and they say, well, Jesus never said the phrase, I am God. Therefore, he never claimed to be God. Friend, you have to read it through Hebrew eyes. Jesus is saying again and again, when he rides through Eastgate, when he walks on the water, when he multiplies the bread, when he hands it to his disciples, the next chapter in chapter 13, in chapter 13, Jesus walks into the upper room and it says all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. And yet we find Jesus taking off his outer robe. He picks up a towel, a servant's towel, and he does the job of the lowliest servant. He washes the feet of his disciples 
And in doing so, right after he does that, he sits up at the table and he breaks bread and he gives it to all of them. And he basically says, I am the provider of the universe. I am God. I make bread grow. I have the power to bring the fruit of the vine. And yet, what did you just see me do? I washed y'all's feet. This is what it looks like to follow me. The more power you have, the more power you have to leverage for the love of those around you. John 13, 35. They will know that you follow me by the way that you love one another. Maundy Thursday is the day we call this in the church calendar. That stands for mandatum Thursday. Jesus says, a new command, a new mandatum, a new mandate I give you. Love one another. This is how they'll know that you follow me. Not by how you vote, not by how, what you refrain from, not by how many Christian shows you watch, not if you're up to date on the Chosen series. They will know that you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. And Jesus says, I'm not just a man full of empty words. I'm about to show you what love looks like. And he begins his walk to the cross. John chapter 14, the disciples are confused. What do you mean you're leaving us? What do you mean you're going somewhere? How will we know the way? John 14, verse 6, Jesus replies, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. This upsets the disciples. He starts talking about his own crucifixion. And once again, a new group of people have figured out that Jesus has not come to do what they thought. Peter even says, you can't go die. We need you. Jesus then says, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> if you ever get called Satan by Jesus, it's not a good day. It is not. Peter's journal that night was like, Jesus, call me Satan today. Today has to, tomorrow has to be better because it could not be, like it can't be any worse than today, right? That's the only great thing about that journal entry is tomorrow will be better. So we move to John chapter, that's John chapter 14. John chapter 15, Jesus says, there's going to become a lot of trouble in this world. In this world, you will have trouble, okay? This is going to be painful. It's going to be difficult. If you want to stay to the end, you must remain in me. Remain, 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 remain. A dozen different times, I think it's 14 or 15 different times, in a 12-verse section, Jesus uses the same word, remain. Stay, stay, remain. When the world tells you to do something different, you remain. When it, gets, when it gets more difficult in your heart, remain. When the troubles of life hit, remain. When you lose someone that you love, remain. When you start a relationship with someone you're unequally yoked to, don't do that. Remain. Stay with me. Remain. Follow me. Stay in church. Stay in community. Remain, 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 remain. How are you going to do that? John chapter 16, the Holy Spirit's going to come. Jesus makes this bold and audacious claim. He says, it's better for me that I leave so that someone greater than me can come. Who's greater than Jesus? The Holy Spirit. How is he greater than Jesus? Jesus, in order to pay for the sin of mankind, became flesh. When Jesus was here on the earth, he couldn't be like in Tasmania and in New York at the same time. He was bound, okay? Why? Because we are bound. He became man. He was fully God and fully man. So he said, when I leave, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit that can indwell in each and every one of you. It is better that I leave so that not only will I walk beside you as a human, a companier, I will live within you. You'll become my temple and I will dwell within you in the Holy Spirit. That's better than what I've even done right now. That's John chapter 16. John chapter 17, Jesus begins a prayer for you and for me. And he prays this deep within his soul and he says, God, don't take them out of this world. Just give them strength and protect them from the evil one. They have a job to do. There are people who don't know you. True paradise is this, that they would know and love you and the, me, the one that you've sent. Do not take them out of this world. Give them strength to endure the world they live in. Empower my people, Jesus prays on our behalf. And here comes John chapter 18. John chapter 18, a man named Judas, one of the 12, who's been stealing from the coffer all throughout his ministry, finally puts his chips in. The question that all the disciples must ask themselves is, what do you make of this Jesus character? It's the same question you must answer for yourself. Judas is not convinced. Judas thinks if this guy's going to do what he said he's going to do, he should have overthrown Rome. He should not have chosen meekness. He would not be washing our feet. He would not be doing these things that show this sense of humility. He would come with bombastic, bodacious power. So he puts his chips in. He goes, I don't think this is the Messiah. And he betrays him for 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver, which in the Old Testament is the price of a dying slave. Judas betrays Jesus. 
our dying, suffering servant. And he gives it to the religious leaders and he says, you give me 30 pieces of silver, I'll tell you where he is and under the cloak of darkness so no one will know, it won't start a riot and we can be done with this Jesus once and for all. They go to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is a word, Gethsemane, which means the olive press. It's where you go, it's, it, the olive press is a place where you would put all of the olives that you had taken, you would take a really heavy wheel and you would press those olives. And the first time that the olive was pressed, the oil that would come out of it would be called extra virgin olive oil. It's oil that came out during the first pressing or the first pressure that was put on the olives. Jesus now finds himself in the place of the olive press. That's what the word Gethsemane means. And it says in the text that he is literally dripping drops of blood from his brain, from his head. He's in such agony. For some reason, I thought when Jesus went to go be crucified that he was like happy about it. Not the case at all. Jesus' prayer is this in the garden. I don't want to do this. He's, he's fully God and he's fully man. He didn't use his godness to take away the pain of the cross. He is horrified of what's going to happen. He does not want to go. He prays this to his father. If there is any way for this cup, what cup? It's the cup of God's wrath. Jesus says, I sit here with a cup in front of me. I sit with a cup in front of me. And I know what this cup is. It's Chris Hilkins' cup. You see, what Chris has done in his life the rebellion that he is, he's, he's been rebellious against you and he has sinned against you and he's committed treason against you. And now what he deserves is to drink the fullness of your wrath because you are bound by your character. You are a God of justice and you demand that the penalty for his sin be paid. And that's what this is. And it's hell and it's hell forever and it's tormentous and it's not your common grace and it's an absence of you. And this is the cup that he is to drink and I don't want him to drink it, but I don't want to drink it either. Is there another way? This is Sarah's cup. I don't want her to have to drink the cup, but I don't want to drink it either. You see, if God is anything, he is perfect, which means his love is perfect. His holiness is perfect. His forgiveness is perfect. His peace is perfect. You know what else is perfect? His wrath is perfect. When God's wrath comes, no one's confused about his state of mind. In the book of Revelation, there's literally this part of the, of the, of the book where the mar people who have been martyred and have seen their kids killed are tugging at God's robe, and they say, how long, O oh Lord, will you wait to pour out your wrath on those who have killed us and our generations and our children who have spilled the blood of innocent men and women, the martyrs of faith? We have died for the sake of the gospel, and yet you wait to pour out your wrath Bring your wrath now as they tug at his robe. And you know what God does? He says, just wait. And then it says, God pours out his wrath in its fullness on those people. He pours out his wrath in fullness on the enemies of God. He pours out his wrath in fullness on the object of his wrath. And do you know what says happens in that moment? It says, for 30 minutes, all of heaven is silent. It's almost as if when they see what God's wrath looks like, they all almost ask for a relent because their wrath isn't perfect. Their justice isn't perfect, but God's is. And as they cry for wrath, they then figure out, holy cow, that's perfect wrath. That's perfect justice. And it's silent. And Jesus is looking at the cup, full aware that his father's wrath is perfect. But friend, that's not his cup to drink. It's yours. You see, the separation of all of mankind is that there's two kinds of people who sit in this room. Some of us, our cup sits before us. And on the day of, a, on the day of reckoning, on the day that you die, having not surrendered your cup to Jesus, the Father will say, it's time for you to pay the penalty for your sin. I am a God of justice. I made a way for you. I loved you. I, I beckoned you with my loving kindness. I did all those things. And you consistently said, I want nothing to do with you. And so you will have nothing to do with me for the rest of eternity. Drink the cup. 
Even while you were my enemy, I died for you. I sent my son. You went to Hume Lake. I beckoned you. you I called out to you from the stars. I called out for you from the heavens. I called out from the intricacy of subatomic particles to show you that I intricately knew you. I knit you together in your mother's womb. And in your sin and in your pride, you said, I want nothing to do with you. Drink the cup. I can't take it from you. That's not justice. Someone has to drink the cup. And my son said he would take it for you, and you didn't give it to him. In your pride, you wanted to take it for yourself. I think it breaks the heart of God, but he passes the cup of wrath across the table. Why? He's bound by his character. It must be paid. And there are those of us who sit here tonight with no cup. And it's not because I don't deserve the wrath of God. It's not because I haven't sinned. It's not because I don't screw up. It's because 2,000 years ago, a Jewish carpenter took my cup and drank it on a cross. That's why I don't have a cup. I'm not better than you. I'm a dumpster fire of a human being. The difference between the saved and unsaved is whether or not you have a cup of wrath that you've got to drink or one that Jesus already drank. That's it. So his prayer in the garden is simply this. I don't want them to drink it, and I don't want to drink it either. He's asking, can there be another path that leads to you? Can there be another religious belief system? Can there be another way? Can there be another path? Can there be another way, another truth, another life? Can there be something else? Can we have a different version of this that doesn't end with me drinking their cup? The father's response is So Jesus' response, which is the proper end to any Christian prayer, with a deep breath, sweating bullets of blood, Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. And he picks up that cup, and he walks to his cross, and he's spit on, and he's mocked, and the trial goes against him. And it says, prophesied in the book of Isaiah, as a sheep before his shearers is silent, Jesus will not open his mouth. Don't you think Jesus could have convinced them? You guys are trying me for blasphemy. Show me one thing I've done where I'm not blasphemous. Jesus doesn't, he, <laughs> he makes his case so much worse. John chapter 18. Uh, beginning at verse one. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden. He and his disciples went into it. You can stand here today. You can cross the valley. You can go over to the place where Caiaphas kept Jesus. The prison cell is still there. It's all still there. This isn't a fable. It's not a fairy tale. All these words and all these names and all these dates and all these places are not an accident. They're there for you. The Bible's saying, go check. The Bible wants you to know that this is a true story. It doesn't want you to get hung up on the details of it because it wants you to wrestle with the implications of it. What do you do with Jesus? Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he said to them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is continuing to tell them, this is who, exactly who I am. This is what's going on. Then he stands in front of Pontius Pilate. Go down to verse uh, 31. Pilate tells the Jews, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Pilate wants nothing to do with him. Jesus freaks Pilate out. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't want to crucify him. He doesn't want to try him. He tries everything in his power to get rid of this guy. Do you want to know why? Pilate's wife said, don't do it, right? Any married dudes in here when your wife's like, I got a bad feeling, you just listen to them, okay? They got this thing. It's like sixth sense. She says, I, don't mess with Jesus. <laughs> Could she have been more right? She was basically going, you're going to crucify the God of the universe. I probably wouldn't do that if I were you, right? <laughs> Women be right. You know how they be. Verse 
34. Oh, sorry, 33. Pilate went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, so you're the king of the Jews. Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did someone else tell you about me? 35. Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Bro, you must have really screwed up. Your people brought you to me. You're a Jew, and the Jews brought you in. You must have really made some people mad. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the very reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Oh, man, you got to love this. Jesus, or Pilate replies, what is truth? With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release Jesus, the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Barabbas was a murderer, deranged, psychotic murderer. But he didn't offend them. He didn't convince them that their world was going to get turned upside down. He didn't threaten the position of the religious elite. He didn't come and say, I have come to turn the system on its head, that the first may be last and the last may be first. And for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, not by work, so that no one can boast. He, when they wanted him to wash his hands before a meal, he wouldn't do so. When he, they didn't want him to heal on the Sabbath, he did it anyway. The religious elite are starting the chain against him. Crucify him, crucify him. Give us the deranged murderer. At least he doesn't change my life. At least he's not upsetting our system. Give us the murderer back. Give us Barabbas. Pilate goes and he washes his hands and he says, I am not responsible for this. If you want to kill him, y'all kill him. I don't have anything to do with this guy. That's exactly what they do. Go to 19, verse 19. <clears throat> In the meantime, they've twisted together a crown of thorns. When I say a crown of thorns, don't think like rose thorns that are like this long. If you go to Israel today, they've got bushes called the crown of thorns bush. The thorns are this long. They twist together with gloves, a crown of thorns, and then they put it on Jesus' head, and these are rod to beat it into his skull. He's bleeding profusely. Just to mock him, they give him a sentence of 39 whips with a cat of nine tails, where they take leather, and on the end of the, the strips of leather, they tie pieces of bone and cartilage and teeth and glass and metal, and they beat him. 39 times. Why? Because 40 was considered an execution sentence. It's just a joke to them at this point. They put a purple robe around him because they called him the king of the Jews. They're mocking him. They're humiliating him. And every piece of modern art isn't willing to go where the actual crucifixion victim would have had to go. Jesus is stripped naked, completely naked. We, we put a little loincloth around him. We put something else around him because we don't want to show the depth of the humiliation of Jesus Christ, but that's what happened. Himself, Beaten, beaten, flogged on full display. God of the universe steps down into our position. He doesn't even stay there. He keeps going lower. And now he's stripped naked and he's humiliated. He's made fun of. He's drinking a cup. He's drinking my cup. He's drinking your cup. That's what he's doing. It's like it's super convenient to not think about what he would have gone through. But here he is. He's in the thick of it. Later, verse 28, chapter 19. Knowing that Jesus had now been finished and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put a sponge on a stalk on the end of a hyssop plant and lifted it up to Jesus. In the book of Exodus, the way that the people were freed from the angel of death is they took a hyssop plant and they took the blood of the Paschal lamb, the Passover lamb, and they used a hyssop plant and they would mark the doors and the lentil posts of their house to show that the blood of the lamb had covered them. 
And here we see the hyssop plant re-engaging in the story to show that once again the blood of the lamb will make atonement, will make propitiation, will pay the price and drink the cup that was meant for mankind. He's fulfilling the Old Testament scriptures. When he had received the drink, Jesus says, it is finished in the Greek tetelestai, which is this interesting tense. It's the past, it's the, it's the present perfect tense, which in English we would have to translate it, it is finished and remains complete. Jesus says, it is finished and remains completed. We gotta ask the question, what is finished? Your disciples have abandoned you. You're now stripped naked, being humiliated. We thought you were gonna come and overthrow Rome, and yet Rome is still in power. Now you have a crown of thorns beaten into your skull. You've got a, a little sign over your head that's mocking you that reads, here is Jesus, the king of the Jews. The people are dividing their lot, the, the clothes among you with lots. They're betting for your broken garments. And everyone has betrayed you and abandoned you, except for maybe your mom who's sitting front row watching her baby being humiliated it is finished. It seems failed to me. He's not talking about himself. When he says it is finished, in Genesis chapter 3, when we rebelled against God, it says there's going to be a war between this, his offspring and yours, between the woman, between us and God. The war began when we rebelled against him. And on the cross of Christ, as he gives up his spirit and he hangs his head and he breathes his last breath, he declares the war between my father and his children is over through me. The veil in the temple that separated man from God is torn in two from top to bottom, showing that it was God's work, not man's work, that have brought us into communion with God. Jesus finalizes the cup of wrath by drinking every last drop. The hell that we deserve, the torture that we deserve, the humiliation and the shame that sin was supposed to bring us, the separation that sin was supposed to bring us, Jesus drank it in full. It is finished. I love what First John says, oh, what great love the Father has for us that now, because of this death, we might be called children of God. Jesus said a lot of big things. I am God. I have the power to make dead things live. I am, John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He who dies, if they believe in me, will never die. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Big checks you wrote with your life, Jesus, but you're dead. Your claims to make dead things live die with you. And his disciples leave and they're in a room hiding away and the third day dawns. Were his disciples at the tomb waiting for him to come back to life? No. Was there a welcoming committee with signs? Welcome back. Good to have you back. No. But see, the grave spits Jesus back out. It can't hold him. And because of that resurrection, Jesus proved that all the big checks he wrote with his life and all the big things he said in scripture are true. He has the power to make dead things live. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He has the power to fulfill John three sixteen for God. So help me out. This is the intent of God. He's doing it, and his intent and his passion comes through his love for you. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son as a sacrifice to drink the cup that you and I deserve, that whoever believes that that cup was drank for them, that that substitution took place, that, that he went to the cross for you, that whoever believes in him will not experience Separation from God for eternity in hell, but instead will have everlasting life. What kind of life? John 10, 10. Abundant, forever, beautiful life. And if we finish the conversation right there, it's the gospel. God taking your place on the cross. Your question might be, well, then how do I receive that? I might, know, I might now know the facts of the story. I think I have all the evidence before me. And now for some of you in here, as the Spirit's been knocking on your heart and turning your heart from stone to flesh, you're ready to go, me. 
I'm an enemy of God, and I don't want to be an enemy of God any longer. I am far from God. I've rebelled against him. I will drink my cup if something doesn't change. But you feel the weight of your sin, and you felt the love of a Jesus who has come and died in your place, and you're saying tonight, not anymore. I want you to drink the cup of wrath that I deserve. I want to live for you forevermore. I do not want to be an object of your wrath. I want to move to become a child of you, Romans 8, verse 15. I want to be adopted as your son. I want to be adopted as your daughter. And you might be asking the question, so how, what do I do? What do I do in response to these things? How do I make that movement? What does that transition look like? I want the substitution to take place for me. And here's what's happened. Here's what's going to happen. Let's pretend like this chapel just ended and now it's just you and I sitting together and you ask me that question. I'm going to walk you through six verses and then I'm going to ask you to respond to it like adults. I'm sure there's ways that I could have been more clear this week. I'm sure there's things I could have said that would have made it more clear for you. I, but I promise you I tried my best. I'm not going, I'm going to walk through six verses in the book of Romans. I want you to see them for yourself. Would you open the book of Romans for me? Because I'm going to ask you to respond like adults. I didn't sugarcoat anything for you this week. I've said some offensive things, but it is all for this moment that you would understand the depth and weight of your sin, that you are much more guilty, egregious, and evil than you could have ever imagined. And in the same token, you are infinitely more loved than you could have ever possibly thought. I would start with Romans chapter one. And I would say, you want to be saved Here's how the gospel starts. The gospel starts with this simple truth. Romans chapter one, verse 19. I want you to read it with me in your head as I'm reading it. I want this to be God's words and not my words. Here's what it says. Uh, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Some of us are like, excuse me, what the heck did you just say? This is a very intelligent theologian named Paul writing. Let me simplify it for you. Paul is saying, God isn't hiding. Let's use this analogy as we walk through it. Let's say, again, you and I were out at the Pondy deck, and you go, what does this passage mean? And I walk you over to Pondy Chapel. And I say, okay, here's what Paul's trying to say. Here's my speculation on how this chapel came to be. Tell me if you think I'm right on or if I messed up. And I walk up here and I go, oh, watch this, watch this, come here. You see this? This is, uh, see this iPad? Oh. And if I asked you, what do you think made this iPad? And you were like, uh, Apple? And I said, no, 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 no. I didn't say who made the iPad. I said, what made the iPad? You would go, uh, like a machine? No, 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 no. You're, you're, you're talking about people. You're talking about intelligence. You're talking about design. I didn't ask you who made this. I said, what made this? Because here's my thoughts. I think this chapel came about, there was an earthquake. Mm -hmm. There was an earthquake. And the earthquake, the, the trees started falling. And then there was this, this little like convent of beavers. And they had this race to see who could put up the most posts. You see these posts on the side? And they started bringing the posts up. And then they, they used to cement them in the ground. They were in tandem. They were in cahoots with the groundhogs. And the groundhogs started digging in. And then, and then the beams. But then the screen. The screen. Do you see the screen? Those are hundreds of millions of tiny little dots. How did those dots get there? They're not dots, my friend. So fireflies working in tandem. And the LED screens in this room, LED, how'd those get here? Ooh, yeah, interesting. At some point, I would turn around and you would either have already left or you would go, bro, are you high? Right, like legitimately, you would go like, we're not supposed to have drugs at Hume Lake. We're just not, <laughs> right? I like the crazy guy on the wall with like all the little, this guy, he's the murderer. That's what you would feel like I was doing, right? You would never take me seriously. My son and I were walking out in Hume like a couple years ago, and someone had carved into a tree. My wife and I were both there, and it, I think it was like three or four years ago, and someone had carved into a tree C plus R with a heart around it. My son, Brady, who was two and a half at the time, said, Dad, who wrote that? Why is that significant? Because something as trivial and simplistic, but with that level of design, forces a, a two-year-old mind to go, who did that? You see, complexity necessitates intelligence. And you know what's interesting 
If any of us are not willing to walk in here and look at an LED screen or to look at lights or to look at iPads and say, there's a chance this happened by accident, for you then to look at yourself and think you were an accident is an incredibly fallacious logical fallacy. It says something extremely complicated came about by random chance, but something far less complicated was probably an accident. You see, there's a man named Francis Collins, and he mapped out the human genome, and he found out that all of, our, all of our bodies are made up of these cells, and these cells are complete with DNA that replicate ourselves, and there's hundreds of thousands of lines of code, A's and T's and G's and C's, and they're, they're, they're com perfectly comprised. He called them a computer code that makes more cells of you. It is more complex than the most intricate computer. We can't even start to sneeze at what your body can do. The number of neurological connections and electrical connections in your brain that make you see me right now is more than the entire county of Los Angeles combined for you to hear me, to see me, and to process what I'm doing. You are an infinitely complex machine. You have computer code written into you. Whenever we see language and code and drawing and design, we automatically assume someone was here. If you were in a cabin in the woods in the middle of the night and your friends were supposed to show up and they didn't, and now you're all alone and you're eating alphabet cereal like you do. <laughs> and as you're eating them, you hear a bump in the night and the bump causes you to smack the box, of, the box of alphabet cereal and they spill all over the table and you're like, son of a gun, right? You go and you get a broom, you're gonna go fix it, the lights go out and you freak out. You go with your flashlight on your phone and you go to start cleaning it up, but as you get back, it spells out, I wouldn't go to bed if I were you. <laughs> There's not a soul in here that would go, <laughs> neat. I'm gonna take a picture. <laughs> what is that, like 22 letters? I wouldn't go to bed if I were you. Don't, please don't actually count. Just let it go. But that, that many letters strung together, we would all automatically go, I am out of here, right? No one sticks around to find out. That's as simple as it needs to be for us to go, someone was here. Francis Collins, after mapping out the human genome, went from being an atheist to a professing Christian, and he wrote a book called The Language of God. He looked at the human genome and he simply said, there is no way this was an accident. This is a Nobel laureate, Nobel Prize winning scientist who wrote a book called The Language of God who looked at you and said, there's no way you're an accident. And if you think you are, then you have a lot more faith than Christians do. Because if we look at that series of letters and think, think that could never be an accident and look at you, that's infinitely more complex and think that you are an accident, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. So Paul says, there is a God. And he's written his obviousness on the stars and the mountain, the subatomic particles. And you, you are the best evidence for the existence of God in our whole universe. Romans chapter 1. Then I would turn with you to Romans chapter 3. We went over this in great detail. I don't need to hammer this point home anymore. There is a God, the next part of the gospel, but you sinned against him. Romans 3 verse 10. There is no one righteous, not even one. Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Bad news. We have all sinned against a perfect and holy God, and our sin, who cares, right? There is a God, we sinned against him, so what? I would have you turn to Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Romans 6, verse 23 says this. For the wages of sin is death. How many of y'all have a job? Who in here has a job? Where do you work? I'm a gymnastics coach. You're a gymnastics coach. Okay, you have the voice of a gymnastics coach. You be yelling at kids all day, don't you? Uh, how much do you get paid an hour? You can make it up if you want to. Like 16, 16. Let's use the word number 10 because I'm not great at math. So what was your name? Lauren. Lauren gets paid $10 an hour to teach gymnastics. It's more than that, but I'm not that good at math. She gets paid $10 an hour to teach gymnastics. Let's say that she works eight hours in a day. That means she has earned in that day a wage amount of? $80, 10 points for a Gryffindor, way to go. She's earned $80. A wage is something that we've earned. When you work, you earn a wage, and then your boss hands you or the company gives you the wage that you've earned. Listen to the dichotomy of this sentence, Romans 6, 23. For the wage, a wage is something that you earn. What you deserve, the wages, the earnings of your sin is death. When the Bible uses the word death, it's not saying 
at one day your heart's going to fail and your avatar that your soul lives in is going to die. We all know that. It's using the word for the wages of sin is eternal death. It's eternal separation. What your life has earned you is hell. That's what you've earned. And you deserve it. That's how you've worked. That's what the boss owes you, hell. The wages of sin is death. And here's a but. It's an important but. It's a conjunctive but. But, Romans 6, 23, the gift of God is eternal life. When do you tend to get gifts? When do you get gifts? Christmas and your birthday. Okay, why do you get presents on your birthday? Nobody knows. You don't even remember your own birthday. You might have seen pictures of it, but you really don't remember, okay? And for whatever reason, every time you revolve one more time around the sun, we go, time to give you some presents. Those are called gifts. You don't earn them. You don't get gifts on your birthday because you were a really good kid this year. It's almost this obligatory thing. It's a gift you've been given. And the people in your life who love you, give them to you. Christmas is even more backwards. It's Jesus's birthday. And we're like, what should we do for Jesus's birthday? Let's give each other gifts, right? You didn't earn that. None of you voted for Jesus to come to earth. You went around and were like, I'm for it. So I should get a gift. No, gifts are given regardless of the receivers, anything. It's not what you've done. It's not what you've earned. Our life has earned us hell. Jesus has given us the gift of life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Why did the grave spit Jesus back out? Because the earnings of sin is death. What's the problem with that? Jesus never sinned. So if the, the earnings of sin is death, then what is the earnings of perfection? Life. So when Jesus got into the grave, the grave was like, beep, boop, beep, boop, beep. You don't belong here. You're the first person in the history of mankind that doesn't belong here. What are you going to do? And Jesus, holding what he is due, which is eternal life, the wages of sin is death, the gift of perfection is life. He jumps out of the grave holding what he's earned. When the grave took him down, he shot back out holding what he had earned, which is life. He holds it in his hand, and now he has the ability to offer it to you. This is the gift of God. The wages that you've earned is death. The gift that he's given us is life. So what do I do in response to these things? Romans 10, Romans chapter 10. Actually, go to Romans chapter 5 first. Romans chapter 5. We're going to go to verse 9, then we're going to go back a little bit. Since now we have been justified, that means God's justice, God's wrath has been satisfied. Since now Jesus' death has satisfied that cup of wrath that I was supposed to drink, since now we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For... Here's where it is. If while we were God's enemies, he reconciled us to himself. While you were an enemy of God, Jesus didn't save us when we begged him to. Jesus didn't save us when we were in a good position. Jesus didn't save us after the great missions trip. While we were his enemies, he walks Calvary's hill. He bleeds to death in his humiliation. While we were still powerless, while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies, this is a love like no other. Romans 5 verse 8. Going back one verse, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. Don't you love that? We don't have a God who just, God thought about his love so much that he wrote poetry. God considered the love that he has for us so deeply that it moved him in his spirit. No, friends, God demonstrated. He moved on behalf of his beloved. He stepped down from heaven, Philippians chapter two. He did not consider equality with God something that he needed to hold on to all the time, but instead he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Then being found in human likeness, he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Why? Because that's what I deserved. The picture of Jesus and Barabbas sitting up there in front of all the people and the people chant, give us Barabbas, kill Jesus. This is a great word picture for what happened on the cross. You see, God had to treat Jesus as if he were Barabbas in order to treat Barabbas like he were Jesus. Said another way, 
Jesus needed, or God needed to treat Jesus like a murderous, gluttonous, lustful sinner in order to treat this murderous, gluttonous, evil, lusting sinner like Jesus. That's the trade. In order for a sinner to become a son, a son must be punished as a sinner. 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made Jesus who knew no sin to become sin for me that I might become his righteousness. This all brings about the final question, then what do I do? Romans 10. We're going to end here. If so far you don't feel the depth of God's love for you in all of this, if you don't sense the passion of his mission and the deep, unyielding love he has for you, I want you to lean into to this last one especially. Romans 10, beginning at verse 9. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There is no parenthetical phrases. There's no conditionals. There's nothing in there that says, if you believe in your heart that God was raised from the dead and if you haven't done enough bad things in your life, if you're one of the good kids, if you haven't had premarital sex, if you don't do this, if you don't do, if you've done all the right things your whole life, then, because so many of us in this room, you're disqualifying yourself from this conversation because you have made a fatal error in your judgment. You believe that you are too far gone for the cross of Christ. Friend, I love you, but you are not strong enough to out the grace of the cross. You're just not. You're not too far gone. You're not unworthy of it. No one was worthy of it. That's the thing that makes us all equals. I'm not worthy of Jesus' sacrifice. I don't even know why he did it, but I dang well am going to receive it. I plead with you on behalf of the heavens and Jesus Christ himself who came and died on a cross in your place that you would too. Because it's the only news that matters. And if this isn't, then nothing else does. And it's twofold. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. That word Lord is the Greek kurios. It's, it means master. It, it means that those of us who surrender our life to Jesus, he is now Lord and, and king of our life. It means that I live my life in such a way that I say, God, you are in control. You're the captain. You steer the ship. Am I still going to make mistakes? You better believe it. I make mistakes every day. But he's the king now. I yield my power to him. If you confess with your mouth that he is Lord of your life and believe in your heart that 2,000 years ago when Jesus died on the cross, he drank the cup of wrath that was meant for you, you confess your sin and you say, Jesus, take it, drink it. I don't know why you're doing this. I don't, can't understand how much you love me, but I believe that your death and resurrection prayed the price for my sin and gave me the hope of resurrection. You will be saved. Don't make it any more complicated than that. Satan wants the gospel to be complicated. It's not. It's clear. There is a God. We sinned against him. We've earned hell. God, in his perfection, has handed us new life. How do we receive it? God, you are the God of my life now. I believe that when you died on the cross, you paid the price for my sins, and that your resurrection showed that you have the power to make dead things live, and that one day I will spend forever with you in eternity the gospel. And as adults, I'm going to ask you to respond to this truth. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray. And in that prayer, I'm going to start praying as if I were receiving Jesus' work on the cross for myself for the first time. If tonight you want to do that, if this whole week you've, you went like, it makes sense. I get it. I recognize my sin. I recognize that I'm an object of his wrath. I recognize that I'm an enemy and I want his work on the cross to have paid the price for my sins and I want to live for him. I'm going to invite you tonight for the first time to surrender your life over to him, to repent of your sins and give it to him. And I try to be as clear as possible. And I'm just going to ask you as adults to make a decision. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. At the end of that prayer, I'm going to count to three, and if any of you, for the first time in your life, want to surrender your life over to him, you want to respond to the gospel, you acknowledge the truth of all of these things, 
and you declare he is Lord and he paid the price for my sins and his resurrection showed that I will live again. I'm gonna ask you after the prayer, I'm gonna ask you to stand up. Here's what I'm gonna ask you to stand up. I don't get like brownie points. Human leg doesn't get brownie points. I'm gonna do it for twofold. Number one, if you can't stand in a room of mostly Christians, you're not gonna stand when you go back home. Don't even bother, okay? This culture Satan, the enemy, your flesh, everything is opposed to what a lot of you are about to do. And, and, and a Christian faith is a public faith. It's a private relationship. It's a public faith. And so we declare in front of brothers and sisters and our pastors and our youth leaders, this is something that God has done in my heart and I'm responding to this and we're gonna stand up. Secondly, a lot of us in here are going to think to ourselves, well, I, I, I'm worried about what my friends around me are going to think. Let me, let me close with an analogy. Babe Ruth is up to bat. He's got three balls, two strikes against him. If he gets a hit, the Yankees, it's murderer's row. It's 1940. It's, just, it's like the pinnacle of good baseball. If he gets a hit, the Yankees are going to go on to the World Series. If he strikes out, they're done. They go home for the rest of the year. The umpire's name is Babe Pinelli. Babe Ruth is up to bat. Babe Pinelli is the umpire. Here comes, the, here comes the pitch. Three balls, two strikes, two outs. It comes low and outside. Everyone in the Bronx, the Bronx bombers, they go, ball! Babe Pinelli stands up and rings him up. Oh! Babe Ruth loses his mind. Everyone in the Bronx loses their mind. They're screaming 40,000 strong. That was a ball! Boo, that was a ball! Babe Pinelli, as cool as the other side of the pillow, gets up, brushes off the plate, and starts to walk off. The game has concluded. Babe Ruth turns around. He's the most famous man in all of baseball. He's a sultan of swat. He's the king of crash. He's a colossus of clout. And he points his bat at Babe Pinelli, and he says, listen, 40,000 people disagree with what you just said. Babe Pinelli, without skipping a beat, says, yeah, but my opinion is the only one that matters. You see, if your concern right now is that standing up in front of people that are surrounding you or that are around you, remember this, the king of the universe knows you by name. You come to his mind. His opinion is the only one that matters. I'm going to ask you if for the first time you want to make that decision to follow Jesus and receive him into your heart, would you pray with me? You don't need to pray out loud. God can hear your thoughts. Father, through this week, we've jumped into your word. We've jumped into the truth about who Jesus is, the truth about our sin, the truth about your life, the truth about the Bible, the truth about your death, your burial, and your resurrection. And for some of us, God, for the first time, we've understood that your life and our life intersect, that we have a final date with you in heaven face to face where you will make a judgment on our life and we have a bad case against us. But God, for some of us in this room who have been stirred by the hearing of your gospel and by the power of your Holy Spirit, we've recognized that we are your enemies and we want to change that tonight, not of what we've done, but because of what you've done on our behalf when you drank that cup of wrath in our place. So God, if that's us right now, we're gonna pray to you in our hearts. God, I'm sorry for what I've done. In thought, word, action, and attitude, I've rebelled against you. I deserve to be your enemy. I, I deserve the wrath of your justice. But God, I believe that when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the price for my sins, that he completed the war when he was on the cross, and he made a way for you to come into my life. God, I don't understand how you could love me this much, but I receive it. I'm guilty. I deserve hell but I recognize that when you gave up your life, you demonstrated your love for me in that while I was still a sinner, you died for me. And Jesus, I surrender my life to you. I give you my sin, and I trust in your resurrection that your resurrection gives me promise of my resurrection. How could you love me like that? How could you sacrifice that? I don't understand, but I yield my life in response to it. Would you be the king of my life? And God, I trust in your character and in your nature, that as I repent and as I surrender to you, that you will call me for the first time your son and your daughter, and I can cry out to you as Romans 8, 15 says, Abba, Father. 
and that I can move from an object of your wrath to an object of your love, not because of what I've done, but because of what Christ has done. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. And thank you for your resurrection that gives me hope of new life forever. So let me pray. Amen. I'm going to ask any of you in here who through this week this has made sense to you or that you want to respond to the gospel for the first time. On the count of three, I'm going to ask you to stand up. One, two, three. Stand up. You guys can sit down. Here's what's going to happen. We're going to conclude chapel with a song. Um, what we see over and over again in scripture is when people interact with Jesus and he heals them. And make no mistake, that's what just happened. If you ever go, like, why doesn't God show us a miracle? You just saw one. In a culture, in a current, in a stream of consciousness in our world that is opposed to God and is opposed and is strengthened by the enemy and is against everything that happens up here, we watched God turn hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. He brought people who walked into this chapel dead and turned them into life. That is a miracle. So, we respond by placing the credit in the hands of the one who deserves it. We respond in worship. God, you reap all the glory for what you have done here at Hume Lake 2022. We're going to stand together and we're going to worship in response to what he's done here. Let's stand.